0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. If we haven't gotten the chance to meet yet, my name's Aaron of the joy of getting to be a part of the team here at Wellspring. If you are a kid, before we get into our study, you want to hang out with some other kids, there's some amazing folks over to my left over here in the back that would love to hang out with you over the next few minutes here. So feel free to make your way that direction. And for the rest of us, If you have your Bible, and I I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Joshua, chapter 24. We've been going through the Old Testament for a majority of this year. We're going to continue our way through. We find ourselves this morning in the last chapter of the book of Joshua. And it's a really compelling story, a lot to unpack, a lot to dive into this morning. But before we kind of jump into the text this morning, let me start by just kind of asking a very simple question. How many of you love to make choices or decisions? some you do some you don't right for a lot of us it probably just kind of depends like what exactly are we deciding what exactly are we choosing you know for me you know here's a silly example but going to the grocery store and having to choose between like different like salsas or different cheerios or or cereal that can be overwhelming right you know i have a little uh, video here of my daughter sienna when she was younger you know if you've ever had this experience just being overwhelmed by All the different choices. (laughs) Like what are you supposed to do? (laughs) So this is why that was back up in Washington where we we moved from five years ago. This is why now we go shopping at Trader Joe's because now you just have like two choices for, for stuff, right? And the choices are much simpler. So the other day when we had to go, when I went grocery shopping, I was on a mission to go get Cheerios now for our one-year-old, Adia. And so there's two choices, and I just ended up getting both because I didn't like making decisions. (laughs) So there you go. I have a hard time making decisions and choices that's, you know, side note. But anyway, as we come to the story of Joshua, there's this semi-famous verse here in Joshua 24, verse 15, where Joshua says this to the children of Israel. Choose this day whom you will serve. Israel is called to make a decision, to make a choice. Whom will they serve? And so as we look at this, this passage this morning, I want to back up just a tad from verse 15. We're going to narrow it on verse 15 in a moment here. But I want to start just with a little bit more in the beginning of the chapter to kind of anchor us as we come to this point where Joshua again declares and says over the children of Israel as he's about to himself pass away and die, and the children of Israel are now to live into the promised land. He's giving this, this, this commission, Choose today. Choose this day whom you will serve. Now before we get to that, let's look at, back up with me to verse 1 of Joshua 24. The text says this. Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, the leaders, the judges, the officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, now what's about to happen is this is essentially Joshua's sort of last hurrah. This is his last speech, if you will. And I don't know about you, sometimes there's these figures in the scriptures like Moses in the end of Deuteronomy, Joshua here at the end of the book of Joshua, even Jesus the night before he's crucified in the upper room. These major characters in scripture kind of giving their last departing words. These sort of final speeches, if you will. And what's really interesting about these sort of final speeches is is this is where you get someone's sort of last words before they depart. It's the things that are the most important to them. The things that are deepest within them. The the things that are just crucial that they want to pass on to the next generation. And this is sort of Joshua's last speech. Verse 2, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham... And Naor lived beyond the Euphrates and worshipped other gods. Keep that detail in mind. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates, this is off to the east, and led them throughout Canaan and, and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned them the hill country of Seir to Esau. But to Jacob and his family they went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there. And I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they, they cried out to the, to the Lord for help. And he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Now, what what essentially Joshua is doing here is he is recounting Israel's past, Israel's history. And it's not simply just Israel's history, but notice how God is the emphasis, God is the primary actor in that that paragraph we just read. That is, Joshua is giving this final speech. One of the things that Joshua wants to communicate to the people is that look at what God has done for you in the past. Look how God has delivered you. Look how God has given you this land. Look how God has rescued you out of slavery. And don't forget this, Israel. As I, Joshua, am about to depart, and now the the next generation is going to live into this land, the fulfillment of the promise, all the way back in the book of Genesis. Remember, Israel. Remember the things that God has done. Remember that God is the one who has delivered you. God is the one that has saved you. And this is key. Yahweh is the primary one behind all of the verbs. We find all of the actions in the beginning of Joshua 24. Joshua goes on, verse 8, I brought you, Israel, to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. This is all the way back in Numbers 24. This is the Shrek, the talking donkey story that Joshua was alluding to. But I will not listen to Balaam. He blessed you again and again, and I delivered you again out of his hand. Then verse 11, then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. Now we're back in the book of Joshua now. The citizens of Jericho, this is Joshua 6, fought against you, as did also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Gershites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead, ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings who did not do it with your, you did not do it with your own sword and bow. Notice that, at the end of verse 12. God wants to remind them, but it wasn't you that was the primary fighter. I was the one fighting for you. I was the one who delivered you. I was the one who gave you this land. Verse 13, he says so as much. So I, God, gave you a land on which you did not toil, In the cities you did not build, and you live in them and eaten from their vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Again, it's just kind of continuing this theme. Yahweh, the God of Israel, he is the one who has delivered. He is the one who has brought Israel to this place. Now if you kind of notice as I read that that last paragraph there, there's all this talk of God giving them this land, defeating all of the ites, all of those different peoples in the lands of Canaan. Now, we've talked about that the previous couple weeks. I just want a quick reminder after service upstairs, we're going to have about an hour and a half where we're just going to dive into all those sort of nitty-gritty passages and talk about the the conquest of Canaan and talk about all these different stories in the scriptures, in particular the book of Joshua, of God sort of like commanding Joshua and commanding the children of Israel to go take over these other lands. How do we think about those things? So that's that's after the, the gathering. But for the rest of our time this morning, I want to focus on... What Joshua then tells the people, in light of all that Yahweh has done in the first half of Joshua 24, in light of all of the things God has done in the past, how now is Israel to respond? What is the response that Joshua wants from the people, that that Joshua is calling the people to respond to? Now as we look through this, there's going to be three primary things I want to kind of center our time around. And the first one is simply this that Joshua calls Israel, number one, to put away the foreign gods. Put away the foreign gods. Joshua 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Here's the key phrase put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve Yahweh, serve the Lord. The first thing that Joshua tells the people in light of all that God has done is to put away these foreign gods, to put away all of these things from the past that have distracted and have kind of led them astray. And then if you know the rest of the story, that will continue, unfortunately, to lead Israel astray. But here's the thing, this call that Joshua in his sort of last speech as he's giving to the children of Israel to put away the foreign gods, this is crucial for Israel It's crucial for their well-being. The reason that that God had given them this land, that God had told them to drive out the Canaanites, was one of the primary reasons. was because of idolatry. was because of the the terrible effects that would befall Israel if they went after other gods. The storyline of scripture is simply this, that Yahweh, the one true God, is the one who is the sustainer and the creator and the provider for Israel. And for Israel to go any other direction would lead to their destruction and their ruin. But here's the thing for us today. When we hear this language of like, put away the gods or put away the idols. I don't know about you, but what comes to my mind is like some tiny little trinket, golden-ish, silver statue sort of thing. Like something from, I don't know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or something like that, Right? And that's what comes into my brain when I hear this language of put away the gods. So the question then, I want us to think about this for a second, is how does this relate to, for us? Like, I'm assuming, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that for probably all of us in this room, you don't have like a shrine in your garage that you're like bowing down physically and worshiping, you know, when you go home tonight. Right? I'm assuming that's not a problem. But here's the thing. In In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 14, Ezekiel talks about not just the idols that are like physical statues. Ezekiel 14 verse 3, the prophet Ezekiel talks about the idols of the heart. The things that take our allegiance in our devotion, in our thoughts. The things that perhaps aren't necessarily like a physical statue or like a tangible presence of something, but is actually real and has power over our lives when we give it our allegiance and our thoughts in our time. And so as we think about what it means for us to put away the gods, to put away those things that, that take us away from worship and service of our God, here's sort of three things that maybe can kind of help us with that. This is from someone way smarter than myself. I couldn't figure out like where I, I got this originally from. But a biblical scholar, I think it was Chris Wright, talks about three different ways to think about Modern sort of idols or modern sort of gods in our own day. And the three things are simply this. What are our number one, what are things that perhaps deaden your relationship with Jesus? Things that might suck the life and the joy and the delight in following after Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is beneficial. Meaning that there's some things that might be technically okay, technically not wrong, technically not sinful, but it might not be beneficial for you in your relationship with Jesus. It might not be helpful and fruitful and life-giving towards having a passionate, joyful discipleship life to Jesus. For you, as you think about this, what are some things that perhaps deaden, or another way to kind of spin that or say that, they're all going to start with D, so just... Deal with the, 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 there's an alliteration going on there. I can't even say alliteration. (laughs) What kind of takes the life out of our discipleship to Jesus? What might that be? The second one is this. What distracts? What distracts? Now these overlap a little bit here. But for, for us as we live in 2021 here, what might be some of those things that distract us from Devotion and attention and allegiance to Jesus. You know, we live in the age of the smartphone and social media and all these different things that it becomes so easy for like good things in particular and things that aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves in particular to distract us from allegiance and devotion to Jesus. I think it was Mary Oliver said that attention leads to adoration. What we give our attention to, what we give our thoughts and, our, and what we focus on That is where our devotion and allegiance will inevitably follow. So what deadens, what distracts, and then the third one, what deceives? What deceives? John chapter 8, Jesus talks about the Satan, and it's kind of his most kind of comprehensive teaching on Satan. And the thing that Jesus calls the Satan is the Satan is the father of lies. And that Jesus tells his followers that it's the truth that will set you free. And that in a cultural moment like ours, it's imperative that as followers of Jesus, we abide in the truth of Jesus, that we abide in Jesus himself, and that there's all these other things that perhaps might have the flash and the glamour and all of the perks, if you will. But in the end, they might deceive and lead us astray. Now, I'm intentionally kind of being a little bit broad here. Why? Because I want... I want you for a moment right now to maybe ponder some of this. Again, these three sort of overlap to a certain degree. But what deadens, what distracts, and perhaps what might deceive or kind of lead astray in our discipleship to Jesus? And perhaps as the Spirit is kind of working and and speaking and leading, that something maybe is brought to mind, and maybe it's a it's a good thing. Oftentimes it is, and what I, mean, what I mean by that is it's not necessarily sinful in of itself. But in particular, at this season in life, in this moment in life, for what God is calling you to, for what God has planned for you, it might not be the best thing. It might not be like what Paul says. It's all things are lawful for you, but is it beneficial? Is it beneficial for your relationship and discipleship to Jesus? Maybe something to think about this week. As Joshua tells the children of Israel to put away the foreign gods, what would that look like for us? Thinking about what deadens, what distracts, and what deceives. But then Joshua goes on. This is kind of the, the crux, kind of the central kind of theme of the passage here. Number one is put away the foreign gods. Number two is choose whom you will serve. Or choose this day whom you will serve. Verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve Yahweh the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here's the thing. Choose this day whom you will serve. That's the, kind of the quote from the Bob Dylan song, right? Everyone's got to serve somebody. It's 100% true. We might think that, oh, I'm just serving myself. Well, you're serving yourself then. Or you're like, oh, I'm not actually religious. or I'm not actually serving anybody. But if you really press in, if you really think about it, if you really sort of do an inventory on your life, we are all serving and worshiping someone or something. The question is, is who? Or what? And Joshua, Joshua, he says, choose this day whom you will serve. Let me, let's kind of break this, this phrase down a little bit. This idea of choose. Choose, the, choose, right? We're not talking about like choosing Cheerios in the grocery store. We're talking about choosing devotion and allegiance and faithfulness to Jesus. And this concept of, of choice is really interesting Even thinking about here in Joshua 24. Because for the most part up until this point in the Torah, in the the Old Testament, God has been the primary actor throughout all the stories. God is the one who's rescued. God is the one who has saved. God is the one who has delivered. God is the one who has given Israel this land. And here at the end of the book of Joshua, now the, the script is flipped, if you will. Now Israel is called to choose. Israel is called to make a decision. In light of everything that has happened, you have a choice to make, a decision to make. And this isn't just Joshua 24. This isn't just some kind of one-off story in the Old Testament. This is actually very consistent throughout Scripture. In light of what God has done, in light of God's saving rescue, a decision has to be made. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says you cannot serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, God and money. Or even later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus presents his, his, his hearers with basically two choices. There's the wide and narrow path that leads to destruction, but there's also the narrow path that leads to life. Or Jesus contrasts kind of two, two people who will practice or put into practice the teachings of Jesus. One is a wise person. Who follows and chooses to put the teachings of Jesus into practice. And that wise person is like a person who built his house on the rock. The winds came. The storms came. The rain kind of beat against that house. But it did not crumble. That person made the decision to follow Jesus. But the contrast, Jesus says, is the foolish person who does not put the teachings of Jesus into practice. Whose house is like built on sand. And the wind came, the rains fell and beat against that house, and it actually crumbles. So whether it's Joshua in the Old Testament or Jesus in the New Testament, the choice, the, the, the decision has to be made on the part of God's people. And remember, this is a people that have already experienced the saving power of God in their lives. And I would venture to say that this idea of choosing Jesus or choosing to follow him is not something that maybe you did at summer camp one day when you were young or like in an altar call sort of setting, but this is perhaps a daily, or I think it is a daily decision, a daily choice, choosing this day whom you will serve. A conscious decision. Now, this isn't just something that's just like mental in my head. Oh, I agree with Jesus. I choose you. No, as Joshua continues, choose this day whom you will serve. There's action involved here. There's not just ideas in my head to agree with, but serving, giving my whole allegiance, my whole body, my whole life to the king of kings. So not only is it we to choose, but we're to choose, Joshua says, this day, this moment And I think about for us in our context in 2021, what does it look like in this moment, in this cultural moment to choose Jesus? John Tyson, the pastor in New York City, talks about how maybe a generation or two ago, he kind of talks about how different cultures and how their receptiveness to Jesus has shifted over time. And he says maybe a generation or two ago, we were perhaps in a more of a green sort of cultural moment, meaning this, that it was more or less kind of okay and accepted And maybe just normal for people to follow Jesus. It's kind of what the culture was doing. But then times kind of shift and we kind of move into like a yellow sort of culture. Where you're kind of just strange if you follow Jesus. Like that's kind of odd. But then he talks about like perhaps now and to varying degrees we're in like a red moment. Where it's not just that you're like odd for following Jesus. But perhaps it's like a little dangerous The way you think, what you believe is like dangerous for the rest of society to a certain degree. So what does it mean this day to choose this day whom you will serve? Well, I think in part it means that it's not always going to be easy. Not everyone is always going to like be our best friends and, you know, kind of sing kumbaya with us together. But this also means that there's a level of, and Jesus talked about this. In this world, John 16, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. But what does he say? Take heart, I have overcome. I have overcome the world. The point I'm trying to make is simply this. That in this cultural moment, in a moment like this today, that there is, yes, a cost to following Jesus. There is, yes, the reality that following Jesus is not always going to be easy. That choosing this day. To follow him and to stand for what he teaches and what he believes. And to live into the character. And all that he has is not always easy. Choose this day whom you will. The last part, serve. Simply meaning this. Again, I mentioned this a moment ago, but it's not simply just, okay, I agree with all of the things that God has said in my head. And I've checked the box and I agree with the doctrinal statement. But choose this day whom you will serve. It's the same word for worship in the Old Testament. Choose this day whom you will worship, whom you will serve. Again, the Bob Dylan quote I think is so true. Everyone has got to serve somebody. The question is who? Who are you serving? At what altar do you worship at? Don't just think, okay, what I agree with, what I believe in my head, but What is the pattern? What is the evidence, the pattern of my life? What does that that demonstrate? What does that show? Choose this day whom you will serve. And in the economy of Jesus, being a servant is the pathway to greatness. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to, did not come to serve, but did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, right? That famous passage where Jesus says, if you want to be great, the greatest among you will be a what? A servant. This is like the crux. This is the hallmark. This is the central kind of theme, if you will, of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. One who lays down his life. Because why? Jesus has laid down his life for us. And he Wright says that the call of the church is to implement the victory of Jesus Through the sacrificial suffering love of Jesus. The self-giving, servant-postured love of Christ. That is to be what it means, I think, what the scriptures, I think, are saying. To choose this day whom you will serve. Not just agreeing with who you kind of worship, but the manner in which you do that. The manner in which you serve. The manner in which you live your life. The cross-servant-shaped love of Jesus displayed for all to see. Choose this day whom you will serve. That's kind of the second main point here. But here's kind of what's interesting. At often this point in sort of message like this, it can kind of get to this point where, okay, let's kind of amp ourselves up, get kind of the rah-rah going on, right? You know, NFL season starts today. It's kind of like the pregame sort of huddle. Everyone's kind of jumping up and down. Choose this day who you will serve, right? Let's kind of get get going with it. By the way, don't tell me any scores (laughs) at all. I just thought of that. (laughs) got distracted. We kind of get to this point, right, where choose this day whom you will serve. And it's like, okay, we got to amp ourselves up. we got to kind of get the juices flowing, and we're going to leave this place, and we're going to choose, by golly, we're going to get it done. And I, like, I get, there's a place for that to a certain degree, more so in like sports. But with following Jesus in Christian discipleship, look at what the text says in Joshua 24, verse 23. Number three, yield your hearts. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods, we talked about that, that are among you, and yield your hearts to the Lord. What's Joshua saying here? It's not simply, okay, I gotta muster up the strength, I gotta make the the grit and the determination to choose this day whom I will serve. Joshua also says, yield. Slow down. Surrender the deepest part of who you are to God. And let God do a transformative work from the inside out in your life. Don't try to do this thing by choosing with all the grit and the determination of your own strength. No. Yield your heart to Jesus. Open yourself up to the transforming love of God in your life. Yield. Slow down. It's a really interesting word in the original language. It's the, it is the idea, or can be the idea of surrender. Of saying, I, I do not have it within me. I am not capable of doing this. Which is exactly what Joshua tells them if you continue to read the chapter. That Joshua has like this kind of sixth sense going on. in it where He's like, you're actually not going to be able to do this, guys. I'm sorry. Just like Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. They almost like know how the story is going to go. It's like almost they had help as they were writing this. But here's the thing. This idea of yielding your hearts to the Lord. If you really press in and think about it, it can actually be pretty scary. Because what if God begins to address some of the things in my heart? What if God begins to confront and do that deep work of transforming love that at times can be painful, at times requires some vulnerability, at times requires some honesty and confession and repentance. I think for many of us, we like agree with this idea, yes, surrender our hearts to Jesus. And on one level, yes, it's true and it's beautiful. And yes, the spirit is so willing to do this work but our schedules are full. We're too busy. We're too distracted. That line in the the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus talks about the the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, someone kind of kind of played off that and talked about how the spirit is willing, but the schedule is often full, right? The busyness of our lives, the distractedness of our lives. And this is me too, right? I'm, I'm saying this as this is all of us and myself especially included. We're this work of actually surrendering and yielding ourselves to Jesus. Yielding, just even in the, the, the concept of yielding, just implies at the very least slowing down. Slowing down to allow the transforming work of God's love to reach deep within us. And so as we close today, I just simply have two questions and a simple practice to kind of take away for us for the week ahead. What might this look like for us today? We kind of addressed some of this, but let me just kind of nail this down, kind of land it hopefully with a little more clarity. The first question is this. What might be getting in the way of your relationship with God? As Joshua tells the children of Israel to put away the foreign gods, I think this very simple question is almost the same for us. What gets in our way of our relationship and devotion and allegiance to Jesus? What are those things that deaden, that suck the life out of following Jesus? What are those things that distract us, kind of, that kind of allure our attention? Oh, shiny object over there. What are those things that perhaps lead to deception and lies? Where we're no longer believing what scripture says about God and about us, but believing what the world says about who God is and who we are. What are those things for you? It's a question that, honestly, I can't answer for you. But the Spirit, as you, in community especially, bring before the Lord. What are those things that pull us away or take us away from our relationship with Jesus? One thing that I'm kind of anchor this in Scripture a little bit here, Hebrews chapter 12 comes right on the heels, obviously, of Hebrews 11. But Hebrews 11 is that kind of great, famous passage of the Hall of Faith, Right? All these great saints of old who, who, by the power of God, done amazing things for God. At the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, the writer of the Hebrews says this, therefore, in light of all these things that God has done through all these people in times past, therefore, the writer of the Hebrews says, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside, and this is key, every weight and sin that so easily entangles us. He goes on, the writer does, let us run this race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But let me go back to this idea. Lay aside every weight and sin, meaning this, that yes, there are some things that are clearly sinful and wrong and damaging to our relationship with Jesus and to one another. But there's also things, the writer of the Hebrews says, they're just like weights. That again, perhaps they're not 100% really sinful but they're a weight they are deadening your relationship and discipleship to jesus and it takes discernment and wisdom and i would say community as well to live into that as we are called to run that race run with endurance the race that has been set before us laying aside those things that easily entangle us or weigh us down what perhaps is that for you what is getting in the way of experiencing more of the love and the grace and the faithfulness of God in our lives. The second question is this. The first one is, what is getting in the way? The second question, perhaps, is something similar to this. Whose voice are you listening to? For Joshua, choose this day whom you will serve, meant among other things, that they were to be a people that followed the voice of God, that followed the instructions of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And for us today, whose voice are we listening to? There are so many inputs. There are so many opportunities to hear so many other voices, so many other ideas out there. That yes, in and of themselves, again, I'm not trying to be like a Debbie Downer here. Right? It's not like all, you know, bad and blah, blah, blah out there. Right? But it does take a level of wisdom and maturity. Are the voices that we're allowing to shape our lives, to have sort of an influence on our lives, do they align with the person of Jesus? And do we know his word and the scriptures to be able to gauge that, to be able to discern that in community? This is why I think it's even more increasingly becoming more and more vital that God's people are people of the scriptures. That we do not move from what, the, what, what God has said and declared in his good and faithful word. One pastor that I respect says something to, like this. He says, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible out loud. Which is a little reductionistic to a certain degree, but you get the point, right? If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible out loud. And there's a level of, here we have the very words of God. Recorded for us in scripture, whose voice are you listening to? We live in an age where we have access to more than enough Bible information, Bible resources, and things that really help us understand the scriptures, but it's often that we just to the neglect of those things because other things are distracting us. I say this, even as someone who loves the scriptures, my idea of a good time is this and what we're going to do after. Talk about the Bible in a more kind of clap. Both of these, I love this. But it's so easy to allow other things to get in the way of hearing the voice of God through the scriptures. So whose voice are you listening to? The last kind of idea is not really a, a question, it's more of a, a simple practice for the week ahead. It's simply this, you know, Joshua told the, the children of Israel to yield their hearts to God. What might that look like for us today? Well. I know for me, one thing that I've tried to implement kind of more recently over the past few months is very simply at the end of the day, just taking 30 to 60 seconds and having a a simple sort of prayer to Jesus of, Jesus, I want to yield and surrender to you. That I want to release outcomes to you. And I do this in the evening because there's there's an act of like as I physically lay my body down to go to bed, It's like I'm physically kind of surrendering. I'm no longer in control when I sleep. God is still at work. I'm not. I'm going to bed. But tying that with the evening of of going down to sleep and just simply praying, just however the spirit leads, something to the effect of of Jesus, I want to surrender, I want to yield to you. That thing, that item, that meeting, that project, that, whatever, that's unfinished, that's distracting, that's a burden for me, that relationship, that conversation, that phone call, anything in particular where I want to simply control the outcome or, or know what's going to happen or have some sort of like tangible gra- uh, kind of grip on it to make sure that it comes out the certain way. That's a moment right there where I think Jesus might be inviting us, maybe in the evening, just to yield there. To yield that to Jesus. To yield my heart in that. That God would do a transforming work. That I wouldn't try to be the one who's always like trying to control and to have the answers and to have it all figured out. But to yield. To slow down. James, the author of the book of James. James chapter 3 has this beautiful line. James 3.17. If this was like a wanna, I would tell you to memorize this verse. James 3.17. The wisdom that is from above... And he goes on to list a few things. is pure, peaceable, gentle. But then James 3.17, he continues, the author does, is the wisdom from above, God's wisdom, is open to reason. Or another way to translate that, is willing to yield. The person that's filled with God's wisdom, that's living by God's wisdom, God's ways, is someone who's not just so brash and headstrong and always trying to make it happen on their own, Right? The last thing you'd want to do from a sermon like this is do the, choose this day who you're going to serve with it's like this headstrong attitude, going to do it for yourself. Know the wisdom from above. God's wisdom is willing to yield. Willing to yield control. Willing to yield outcomes. Willing to yield over to the, to the love of God in our lives. And perhaps as we close, maybe that's the invitation for many of us today. Is that we would yield to God's love in our lives. We would yield to the transforming power of God's love in each of our lives this morning. And that we would allow God's love to soften our hearts. Romans 5, Paul talks about how the love of Christ has been shed abroad in our hearts. And for us as followers of Jesus today, as we, yes, have a decision to make to choose Him. Will you allow, as, as a huge part of that, to yield and to surrender to the love of God today? I want to like the worship team to, to come up. And one of the ways that we have this morning where we can, in more ways than one, really choose Jesus today is through the practice of communion. An opportunity where, for followers of Jesus for millennia now, have come to the table saying yes again to Jesus Saying that, yes, Jesus, you are the center of my life. Saying, yes, Jesus, you are Lord of my life. And I yield to you again. So it's over this next song here. I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you would come down this this center aisle. And there will be some folks up here to my right and to my left. that will be serving communion. It's an opportunity again For us as disciples of Jesus to really choose. Choose this day whom you will serve. The night before Jesus was crucified, he was with his friends, his closest followers, and he had some bread. And he said, this is my body. Broken for you. And he took that bread and he dipped it in some wine. He said, This is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood poured out for you that sins may be forgiven. And throughout church history, because of Jesus and later on, the practice of the Lord's Supper, the practice of communion, the Eucharist, is an opportunity. For followers of Jesus again to choose him. Choosing to trust and to yield to the love of Christ demonstrated on the cross. That no one, no greater love is this, that one has laid down his life for us. So I want to encourage you this morning, maybe to, to pause a little bit to yield And before you come up, just yield to the love of Jesus and choose this day whom you will serve. If you're serving communion, I want to invite you to come up over here. There's some the elements here. If you're more comfortable with kind of the prepackaged communion, there's some elements uh, in the very back for that. Also, if you're in the balcony, there's some communion elements there as well. But as we come to Jesus... again saying we choose you you are good and you're gracious and we love you Jesus we come to you this morning asking God that you would for each person for all of us here God that we would yield to your love that we would turn back to you again So God with whatever we might have with what little we might have God with all of the brokenness and the hurt and the confusion God we want to choose you this morning So Holy Spirit would you would you come would you fill in the gaps would you empower us as your people Would you empower us as your people to choose you this day we love you because you first love us we praise you and thank you and it's in your name we pray amen